My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We here at Euripides Humanities, we use Podbean. So download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own episode in minutes. Podbean provides you everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. It even allows you to splice files together if you need to. It's really great. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Then head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21, that's PODCAST21, for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out! And now, on to today's episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom coming to you from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. My gosh, here we are, number 19. I didn't know that we'd get this far. And a lot of these blogs out there that say, if you're starting up a podcast, most of them don't make it to 20. Blogs, I'm ready to prove you wrong. I'm ready to go. So on episode 13, I had Euripides Humanities' first returning guest, but I'm finding out that my guests who do this show enjoy it so much that when I ask them to do it again, they don't just automatically turn me away. So I have (laughs) Euripides Humanities' next returning guest coming to me from London is my good friend, actor John Dryden Taylor. Hello, John. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's so good to see you again and so good to hear your voice again. But I I just got to jump right into it. You and I, for the last little bit, have been talking about, hey, what's going on uh, with our personal careers and everything? I'm just now getting ready to direct the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Wyo. I'll put the link to tickets if you want tickets. I'm getting ready to do that. But John is blowing me away (laughs) completely out of the water with what he's got going on right now. Of course, I've been following this on Twitter for the last several weeks, and and it just opened. But, John, I want to hear a a little bit about the project you've got going on right now. Uh, So I'm back in a theatre back on stage, which is a very wonderful feeling after 18 months of of pandemic. I'm in a production of Larry Kramer's play The Normal Heart at the National Uh, Theatre in London. At Um, the National! (laughs) At the National! (laughs) Okay, that's amazing. That's amazing. And of course, this isn't your your first time at the National. You've done things Uh, like before. 
it's my seventh. I've been incredibly lucky. This is uh, <laughs> this is the, this is the seventh show I've done that, um, which feels like uh, it's something that happened to someone else. I feel like a competition, right? Winner. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you know you never know what's going to happen in this industry. And after some really dark months, I was um, sitting at home selling vegetable boxes on the phone uh, for <laughs> just a, just about minimum wage. Uh, uh-huh. From the from the from the very spot I'm sitting in and talking to you now, a um, uh, availability came through from my agent uh, saying they're looking for somebody to do some ensemble and covering on the normal heart. And as ever with these things, you know, after months of uncertainty and not knowing if I was ever going to work again, when this happened, it was availability on the Friday, taped it on the Saturday, sent it in on the Monday, and I was in the rehearsal room on Tuesday. It oh, was whoa. so fast. There's... Okay, job's here. Go. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, this one will just be here for six weeks and then and then disappear into the ether. But it's uh, it's ah. it feels like a, a really important play to be doing at the moment. And mm-hmm. it's uh, th- there's a phenomenal cast being assembled and we, we've had some good reviews. So it's, uh, yeah, it is. That's so great. Well, That's so great. I was going to say a lot of fun. I'm not sure you can say that the normal heart is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, at, uh, at but, you know, given the circumstances, you know. Given even, the circumstances. <laughs> even, well, I mean, you know, my experience with you seeing you on stage uh, was King Lear. So, you know, that's not another exactly bar- a neat... Another barrel yeah. of law. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we went crazy again. Um, <laughs> so one thing that uh, has been on my mind about this, I mean, we're, we're all trying to transition. I don't know if you heard about it, but, you know, Broadway just reopened over here and... Uh, yeah one performance in the Broadway cast of Aladdin, who I, I have a friend on that cast, they had to cancel their show after one performance because somebody in the cast may have tested positive. And then the next night they were like, nope, okay, we're good. We can go again. And then now again, they've had to cancel again. And uh, from what I understand, it's not about the audience per se, but more within the cast. But I know that that there are some people who are, they're even out there tweeting like, I'm not really comfortable being in a house where they ask you to be masked, but they say you can bring in food and drink. And <laughs> you know, so, so I, I'm curious, what, what, is the, what is the protocol for an audience at the National for the Normal Heart? Well, the main thing is, is the masking. Um, it's not, as far as I'm aware, fully mandatory, but the, uh, the front of house staff have been encouraged to be you know, quite persuasive in, in regard to <laughs> asking people if they wouldn't mind wearing masks. Looking out over the auditorium, it seems about 90% masked. Um, oh, good. For the shows okay. that, that we've yeah. been doing. Uh, it's been a fascinating experience rehearsing and putting on a show under socially distanced conditions because a lot of the... Right. A lot of the ways you're used to working are, are very different. Uh, so in the rehearsal room... We all had our little space and every space was distanced by, uh, I was going to say two metres, that will mean nothing by uh, six feet. Um, I get it, I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, so things like, you know, a a tea break where everyone might, you know, huddle around Mm -hmm. the kettle becomes something completely different because you're actually sort of shouting across a room. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot less You've got to take your turn going to the table. (laughs) Yeah, uh, and um, there's there was an initial attempt to uh, preserve the social distancing by working out cohorts of characters that interact with each other a lot. The thing about the play, The Normal Heart, is the central character of Ned not only interacts with, but pretty much touches everyone, whether it's a hug or a kiss or a handshake. So 
that sort of went by the wayside and the entire the entire cast is is a cohort but for example for our understudy rehearsals um we're rehearsing the whole thing without touching oh. and only if only if one of us were to go on if we were had if we had to go on for whatever reason then we'd have to produce a negative test and then we'd be allowed uh, we'd be allowed okay. to be on stage without social distancing i can see that i can see that that makes sense like i, I you know it didn't seem difficult to me honestly I I kind of went, I'm sorry, is this not an opportunity for us to just explore how we do this again? Like, yeah. honestly, I, I was telling my my cast the other night, like, yes, Rocky Horror Picture Show is all about sex and, and exploring lust and stuff like that. And But some of the best intimacy that you can have with another character, and I don't know how you feel about this, can be done at a distance. Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I mean, um, a look across the room and a change of silhouette or a change of body structure, just something can tell an audience so much more about, I know what those two people are going to go do once the lights go down. And, and in, the, <laughs> in the space I'm in at the moment, in the Olivier, you have to, because it's a big old, you know, it's a big old 1500 seater, mm-hmm, uh, which is, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which is sizable for theater. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, the, the, the kind of, reaction that would play brilliantly in a studio theatre you know literally just raising an eyebrow you're not gonna you're not gonna get that reaction to everyone that needs to receive it in in a house that size so right so you have to be comfortable playing across distance you have to know about silhouettes and you have you have to know about being subtle with your movement because you know you can't express surprise with a raised eyebrow but you can express it with a small move right right and so i mean here we here we said okay here's just a small tweak that we have to do in order to keep this going that's literally it you know yeah and 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 it 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 surprises me just across the board not just in theater how it seems that you just have people who refuse to want to make even the slightest of changes it uh, yeah i think I think yeah. one one tweet that I read a while ago that explained everything perfectly was, I can't imagine having to explain to two or three generations after this that we lost so many people because we wouldn't cover our dumb, wet, stupid, open mouths with a yeah. piece of cloth. Well, there's a there's a, there's a line actually in the normal heart which keeps which keeps sort of leaping out. I think to the audiences at the moment, uh, which is um, when. There's a, a scene where the uh, the central characters are all members of gay men's health crisis in the 80s, dealing with the right. early days of of what they would later find was the AIDS epidemic, and they're they're talking about uh, strategies to contain that epidemic. And one of the characters waves a cigarette and says, "It's my right to kill myself." And the and the reply is, "But it's not your right to kill me." And, Damn. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, you know that that sort of pings out at the moment. Normal Heart is going on for several more weeks at the National. I'm very happy that that's going on for you. And it sounds like, again, you know, being something about the AIDS epidemic is really a timely thing for an audience uh, and, and just uh, in these times. So that's awesome. Thank you. Now, I'm going to segue that <laughs> into our topic for today. Talking about, go. yes, talking about successes and failures in theater. I'm going to, I usually start these with a question. So I'll just ask you this. Can you tell me about a show that never got off the ground, but could have been great? Uh, yeah, I can. And it's back Ooh. to epidemics because I was, oh, okay. rehe- I was rehearsing a show in March, 2020. Oh. And, and it is, uh, as far as I can tell, 
I better be careful what I say here, but I'm pretty sure that it's not ever going to be resurrected. And oh, I think no. it was going to. I think it was going to be pretty good. And it was a, a strange experience coming to work day by day. And I think, I think most people in the room realised the show wasn't going to happen about oh. a week before it was official. But oh, we all pretended. No. We, we were coming up to our tech week. We were like quite close to, quite oh. close to opening. And I, I certainly had a, a lot of time in that rehearsal room, feeling faintly absurd just trying to get all these individual moments right in a show that I was pretty certain was never going to be was never going to be on I know people go to right. go to Italy and spend six months with Petrovsky not to put a show on but that's a slightly <laughs> different thing um, we had every intention of putting on our show so it was slightly different um, and also it, it, thinking about that experience it makes me remember how little we knew at the beginning of the Covid crisis because our stage manager mm. was coming in an hour early every day to fog the room and uh, sanitize all the props and oh, uh, do all this man. cleaning. And then we it was a musical. We'd spend the day singing six, six inches from each other's faces. Right, um, doing, right. Doing and stuff not, that's much more unsafe. And breathing in all of those, you know, chemicals that are in the air, yeah. all that Lysol. Um, so do you mind telling me what the name of the production was? Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a new musical called Say Yes to the Test, which was about... Uh, uh, about okay. politics, about engagement in politics, which was going to go on at the Leeds Playhouse, and and Leeds is a um, uh, Leeds Playhouse is a theatre I've wanted to work for years. So I I, I mm -hmm. finally uh, got the chance to work there, and then oh. and then we didn't open yep. alas. Yep. Well, today's story is about something pretty similar, but did not necessarily have anything to do with the pandemic. This one I came upon just recently as I was looking up new episode topics, and I found this one and. Oh my God, the deeper this goes. So here we go. <clears throat> it was a Monday afternoon, October the 1st, 2012, to be precise. Director Michael Blakemore called for a meeting of the full cast of the Broadway musical adaptation of the suspensal Alfred Hitchcock film, Rebecca. Did you know about that? No. I don't yeah. know who Blakemore is. Having already gone through several postponements due to lack of funding, among other holdups, this was supposed to be the first day of rehearsals for a production that would finally open in December 2012 at the Broadhurst Theatre. However, Blakemore took it upon himself to inform the cast and crew that, again, Rebecca was going to be postponed due to insufficient funding. And while it was certainly disheartening to have heard for the, for the third time that the production would be pushed back, which had already lost them some big-name talent, their disappointment was fully in the shadow of the embarrassment of producer Ben Sprecher, spelled S-P-R-E-C-H-E-R, -E -E very German, Sprecher, who was also in attendance at this meeting and looked utterly pitiable. Here's a, a quote from an article I read. While there are those in the theater community who harbor beliefs that Sprecher was somehow complicit in the cons and intrigues that have cursed this show, it's clear that his cast and creative team regard him as a benevolent dupe not a malevolent character. Quote, I can't see, Blakemore told me, how it would be in any way to Ben's advantage to carry on a misconception. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm trying to fill, join the dots between the information that I have of a show being postponed this many times, of, of, of one guy who's clearly in some way responsible, but mm, in a way, and crew, and, and you know, we like to moan, we are, we, are not, we are not people who are backwards in coming forward when there's something that isn't going well. So mm -hmm. the, fact mm -hmm. that, the fact that they're seeing him as a, 
as a victim of circumstances rather than mm. an indicator of circumstances is interesting to me. Interesting? You're kind of wondering exactly what happened. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad you asked. As you may or may not know, while it was an adaptation of the film Rebecca, the play was first conceived by German musical theater lyricist and librettist Michael Kunze, who loved the darkness of the tale and saw incredible potential in staging the story. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of the plot for those who may not have seen the movie or read the book. The story's protagonist is a young woman who is not given a name. She is on vacation with a friend in Monte Carlo when they meet the handsome and suave Maxim de Winter. I believe he's played by... He might, I think he was played by Olivier in, in he the film. He was, yeah, in the yep. film. Max is on vacation after the recent death of his wife, Rebecca. After only a few days of knowing each other, Max proposes to the young woman, and she accepts the offer. So, they return home to his private and elaborate estate known as Manderley. And once there, the young woman is somewhat consistently haunted by the memory of his husband's former wife. And through the plot, it is discovered that her husband may have been implicit in Rebecca's death. Aha! Intrigue, bum, suspense. Bum, bum. Yep. So I won't go too much more into the plot here because, you know, go go watch it. I mean, outside of like uh, Psycho and the Birds and North by Northwest, Rebecca is considered one of Hitchcock's absolute best films. It's just incredibly suspenseful. The music is beautiful, etc. And an amazing so. performance from Judith Anderson. Yes. As, uh, as Mrs. Yeah. Danvers, the housekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> just constantly like teasing her with the with the evil all right now it must also be remembered that the film was adapted from a novel of the same name written by Daphne du Maurier who died in April 1989 now Kunza he had loved the book as a teenager and after establishing a solid career as a musical theater artist had read the book again only a few years after du Maurier's death following his inspiration he flew to Cornwall to meet with du Maurier's son Christian who held the rights to the novel Christian had actually been approached several times about uh, adapting his mother's work for the stage, but he turned down every offer that came his way. And I, I, I like, there was no, there was no rhyme or reason to it. I think he just wanted to keep it like, it's kind of like Alan Moore, the comic book artist, you know, he yeah, doesn't want to yeah. have his name on anything that is adapted from his work. Cause he's like, no, I wrote it in this medium for a reason <laughs> among, you know, worshiping like snake gods and stuff. Anyway, uh, <laughs> He was hesitant to accept Kunz's offer, despite Kunz's fame for having co-written the musical Dance of the Vampires, which was very popular in Europe. I, and, and, you know, I, I'm just basing that off of what I've read. Do you know? Yeah, not this bit of Europe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I'm there's not... some, like, on, on the continent that, uh, that those markets really enjoyed it. I mean, the idea of the kick line of vampires, I am absolutely sure. <laughs> Like the Rockettes, <laughs> but vampires. But vampires with big pointy teeth. Um, <laughs> the Drakettes. The Drakettes. <laughs> However, Christian was convinced to accept the offer after seeing a production of Kunz's Elizabeth, which was a long-running musical about Austria's Empress Elizabeth. Now, once permission was granted, Kunza and his writing partner, Sylvester LeVay, immediately set to writing and had a demo of the musical recorded by 2003. The play officially opened in Vienna at the at the VBM, and I'm going to say it that way. It's kind of like you know the central theater complex in the capital city of 
uh, Vienna is some, you know, similar to like the National or the Old Vic and uh, there and uh, here, like the Kennedy Center in Washington. But VBM is three very long Austrian or German words that if I tried to pronounce them, <laughs> I, it's not going to happen. I have a following in both of those countries and I don't want to lose them. <laughs> the play officially opened at the VBM in Vienna in 2006 and legitimately sold out houses for the next three years. So oh my word. So it was good. It was good. Yeah. People loved it. Okay. On September 6, 2008, the production team of Ben Sprecher, who I mentioned before, and his producing partner, Louise Forlenza, announced that they had intended to mount a Broadway production adapted into English, because at this point it was still all German. The announcement for the Broadway production was made in front of a sold out crowd at the VBM to thunderous applause. In many interviews, Sprecher expressed that he believed the play would be the next Phantom of the Opera. Just don't say it. It's like... <laughs> it's like people on a reality show. If, they, if, there's, if there's a producer behind the camera encouraging you to say, uh, I think this is really going to be my week. I'm really good at whatever this challenge is this week. <laughs> then, then you know you're going home. You know, book your cab. And anything like that is such a hostage to fortune. Because, you know... If you say, I think this might be as big as Phantom of the Opera, you're either going to be right or just mm -hmm. catastrophically wrong. Right. And I don't, it is, I don't like those odds. It is a 50-50, and <laughs> the other 50 is really heavy. <laughs> but his announcement, though, was particularly exciting because Sprecher had brought several great revivals of non-musicals to Broadway stages in recent years, such as Brighton Beach Memoirs in 2009, American Buffalo in 2008, and A Moon for the Misbegotten in 2007. So he, he did understand how to mount a Broadway non-musical, but up until now, he hadn't managed a big Broadway musical and Rebecca was promising to make that happen for him. I mean, honestly, if all I had to do was figure out how to translate it from German to English, and the German version had sold out the VBM for three years, I think he's license. got a reason to say it, but... <laughs> yeah, it's a license to print money. I'm sure, that's what, I'm sure that's what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The next few years were gravy as the team started to grow. In August 2009... So not even a year after they had made the announcement, a reading of the newly adapted English language version was held in London, and the cast included Broadway favorite Sierra Boggess, who audiences fell in love with as Ariel in The Little Mermaid on Broadway. And she's just a gorgeous woman and has this great voice. So yeah, put that face on a poster and say, this is the lead in Rebecca. By July 2007, or I'm sorry, 2011, Sprecher's production company announced that they had hired the directing team of Michael Blakemore, who I mentioned earlier, and Francesca Zambello. Blakemore was a Broadway veteran director, having directed such things as the revival of Blythe Spirit in 2009, and Kiss Me Kate in 1999, and that's the production that starred Broadway legends Marin Mazzi and Brian Stokes Mitchell, and also directed the original Broadway production of Noises Off in 1983. And, and, and original London as well. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. He did bring yeah. it over there. Now, Zambello, his directing partner, had most recently directed The Little Mermaid, which became more and more of a selling point for Sierra Bogus to work with her again on Rebecca on Broadway. The production's Twitter account went live in November 2011, and its first tweet declared that the opening date would be April 22nd, 2012. On December 1st, 
another tweet went out declaring that Sierra Bogus had officially signed on to play the lead. And a flurry of tweets from other cast members went out stating that they were reading the script in Starbucks or going in for costume fittings. The buzz was on. Now, okay, as an actor who's at the National, do they ask you to use your social media for, for, for promotion? Or do they uh, say, yeah. oh, be careful? <laughs> Bit of both. Uh, they okay. uh, will encourage you to use social media, but with, with, very, with very sort of strict guidelines about what you can and can't say. But, right, right. Um, the main thing with social media now is, is there's always something in the contract saying, you know, if you do something on social media that isn't cool, then you are, you're in breach of contract. You know, it's, and you're, it's, oh, you're out. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. poten- potentially. I mean, I, oh, okay. I don't know anyone that's, that's particularly happened to, but mm-hmm. you're, you know, it's certainly made clear that you have right. to be careful right. about what you do, which is why you get very generic things like, here's my script, here's my Starbucks cup. Can't <laughs> wait to get started. Yeah, Hashtag right, right. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, several episodes ago, a friend of mine who's a, a voice actor, she is uh, one character in... I think one episode of the new Animaniacs that uh, I can't remember. I think it's Hulu that brought it back. Um, but she said, I don't know how much I can actually talk about this. They, they make us sign these NDAs that are like, okay, if you say anything, we can take your soul. And I nearly got in. It makes me go cold to think about it. I nearly got Ooh. in trouble myself uh, at, during a previous stint at the national where there was a notice backstage of uh, casting announcements. And one of it, uh, one of the, notices was that I'd been cast in something mm-hmm. uh, and I sort of took a picture of it and sort of tweeted always oh. nice to have it that you've got <laughs> but that that was fine I was you know it was okay. fine because my, I, I'd been announced it was all okay but I didn't crop the picture and underneath mm. was basically internal national theatre news about how a very popular comedian was playing his one UK date of the year in the little theatre which oh. I in, inadvertently announced um, <laughs> I and I um, I deleted it very very quickly, and this was actually it actually had quite a nice ending. It was a good human nature because I contacted the comedians fan club oh, okay. and said, "Please stop everyone tweeting. I shouldn't have done that. I'll get in a load of trouble." And they did. Um, the people that had tweeted it took the tweets down. Um, oh. The cat is you know the cat was not let out of the bag, and I kept my job. <laughs> <laughs> well. Good for you. And, and it's obviously paid off in dividends. All right. Now, back to Rebecca. So in January 2012, Sprecher released a press statement that the play would be postponed until sometime in the 2012-2013 theater season. So here's a quote from Sprecher. It is with great disappointment that we have made the decision to postpone the Broadway debut of this phenomenal musical until next season. Rebecca is a grand and spectacular musical requiring substantial capitalization, and it's no secret that in this very negative economic climate, raising money for Broadway has become even more difficult and laborious than it has historically always been. Right. But January 2012, I'm like, I thought everything was kind of on the ups. Yeah. But okay. The red flags that... They're not quite fluttering yet, but they're, they're being run up the flagpole. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's also, like, I hear that, and no, I don't have billions of dollars to invest in shows, and I don't understand sometimes how people make those decisions to invest in shows. But hearing that, I, I can see some people going, oh, you're not getting the money? Well, I, I've been wanting to invest. I'll put some money in now. Yeah. 
I also see the people going, oh, you're going to blame me for not getting your musical going? Well, to hell with yeah. you. I'm never going to throw you any dollars. <laughs> I think I think when you say that you're you know you're bringing over something that sold out for three years and it's going to be the next Phantom of the Opera, uh, when you <laughs> when you then essentially do a kind of guilt trip GoFundMe for it, <laughs> then, then the let's save great. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Donate here now, and we'll put. I donated to a Kickstarter for a movie. It was by uh, Five Second Films. And they have a great YouTube thing that they did for a number of years. But then one of their one of their uh, sketches was like um, a slasher movie sequel called Dude Bro Party Massacre 3. And, <laughs> and they made it into a full length, like 90 minute movie. And it actually ended up being like an almost two hour movie because they actually had to include all the people in the credits who <laughs> funded the Kickstarter. So my name, I may have an IMDb credit out there. There you go. <laughs> One, woo! <laughs> okay, so back to this. Now to be fair, like you said, Sprecher had said in many previous statements that Rebecca could be the next Phantom, but I could see how it could be. I mean, the music and lyrics are fairly similar to Phantom in that they are primarily solos that a, a, a really well-trained actor and singer can sink their teeth into. And, and as far, you know, as far as uh, characterization and vocalization, you know, take any of the big solos from Phantom and, you know, the, the whole gimmick is seeing like what this new actor is going to bring into it and how they're going to change it. Right. Sure. And many of the numbers would develop into sweeping emotional anthems that soon involve the entire company, much like the songs in Phantom. And while the songs may not be on the same level as Phantom, they definitely could lend themselves quite easily to the lasting Broadway playbook. And this is where I'm going to see if I can share my screen with you. I'm going to stop recording for just a moment, and I'm going to play okay. you the uh, one of the numbers that was finally recorded on the demo. So here we go. So... We've just listened to that, and for my, my followers, uh, I didn't get the rights to that, so I'll go ahead and put the link to that YouTube video in the, in the description for this episode, but John, we've just listened to that. That's a stirring piece, in my opinion. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a big old number. Um, right. A couple, of, a couple of things come to mind. <laughs> um, firstly, uh, I did win a little bet with myself as I heard it, because from the moment... <laughs> From the moment that you mentioned that we were dealing with a musical called Rebecca, I thought, well, anyone writing a musical of Rebecca will set the name Rebecca. <laughs> right? Was exactly oh. there. Um, oh, it was gorgeous. Like, and, and, and just haunting and echoing. Yes. Okay. And it, and it builds and builds and builds. And it, it, mm -hmm. it reminded me of a, a brilliant sketch by a, a, British, a much missed British comedian called Victoria Wood, which was a sketch based around rehearsing a musical. And there's this huge number, <laughs> uh, like costume changes, tap dancing, ends with a, a huge sort of climactic high note and jazz hands from everyone. And then which we kind of got there. Just, yep. Which you get there. And just as it ends, yeah, you just see the lead walk off going, we're going to have to do something about this floor. <laughs> and, and whenever I hear a big musical number like that, and, you know, I've done a lot of musical theatre, whenever I hear a big musical theatre number, I, I always picture, you know, what happens in the wings immediately after. So that Mrs. Danvers has sung her huge <laughs> Rebecca song. And, um, 
And then, you know, she's gone into the wings and says, oh, is there any of that chocolate left? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, all, it's all that kind of thing. Or, you know, picks her nose and wipes it on her apron and says, <laughs> okay, well, all right, so what's next? <laughs> awesome. But, I mean, just hearing it, you, you go, this really harkens to, like, that crowd that really enjoys a, a good sweeping Andrew Lloyd Webber or something like Les Mis, or, you know, it, it was big. It's a big old musical number and and it involves you know it just sounded like hundreds of voices even though it's probably like 20 people but anyway regarding the spectacle as you know we're talking about this is being compared to phantom the play mostly takes place in the french estate of manderley which is supposed to be absolutely ornate and exquisite so no minimalism here right yeah <laughs> but the fact that sprecher repeatedly compared this play to phantom almost forced his hand to make the show spectacularly grand. So you've kind of dug your own grave there in a bit. Yeah. Instead of trying to let the play just land on its own, like sure that might attract some investors. They go, oh, I never got in on Phantom and I know people are making a lot of money off of that. So, okay. And at this time, a Broadway musical of that caliber could end up with a budget of 10 to $15 million. Yeah. (laughs) And to go find some dollars. Okay. Are we going to get through this whole episode without mentioning Spider-Man? Um, well, uh, <laughs> I already did two episodes on that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the 2012-2013 season would begin that fall. So when from when the press release about the show being put on hold in January to roughly September, let's say, I should give Sprecher all the time he needed. I mean, he, he had already built up investment uh, promises of $8 million. So we only had to find another four uh, for the projected target of 12 million. So he, I don't think this is outside the realm of possibility, frankly, even though he had already kind of said, you know, it's, it's a difficult environment out there, but I'm sure we can get it done. And, and having a product like this, it sounds amazing. Right. So after some quick hunting around for new partners and investors, Sprecher had entered into a business uh, agreement with TM consulting incorporated in February, 2012. So only a month not even a month after he made the announcement, he's in this new partnership. TM was run by a businessman from Long Island named Mark Houghton, H-O-T-T-O-N, who had a long resume as an investment banker and a financial advisor, and he cut a deal that seemed to be pretty standard. Quote, under the agreement, Houghton undertook to raise money for Rebecca in a return for a fee of $7,500 plus 8% of any funds raised in excess of $250,000, and tiered percentages of Rebecca's net profits. So it wasn't a huge slice of the pie, but he was he was set up like, if I find you the investment, then I, I expect some return. So sure. yeah, it sounds like it's a pretty standard deal. Well, quite quickly, it seemed that Houghton was worth the investment. By March 2012, Houghton informed Sprecher that he had secured four overseas investors who could collectively raise up to four and a half million dollars which would get them above the target fundraising goal. The primary investor was one Mr. Paul Abrams. Have you heard of Paul? Uh, I can't say that I have, no. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty general name, but yeah, okay. Now, not too terribly much was known about Paul Abrams. Seemed that he was something of a wealthy, older, eccentric man who liked, liked to travel the world quite a bit. He had connections to several investment firms and trusts, so he seemed to have the capital to donate. And not only that, Abrams seemed to have a fondness for theater and it had interest in attaching his name to a Broadway musical with the high potential for profit and lasting power, 
Rebecca seemed to hit that niche quite nicely. So Houghton was able to arrange to have any legal paperwork signed remotely, and the partnership with these new investors had begun. Okay? We're ready to go. Now, because he was quite satisfied with the partnership with Houghton, between February and June 2012, Sprecher had paid Houghton over $17,000, far beyond the original fee of the $7,500, and some extra as well. Here's a quote from some documents I found. Furthermore, in April 2012, Houghton demanded and was paid an advance against his 8% commission, claiming that he needed the money to cover the costs of a safari he would be taking with Paul Abrams and Abrams' eldest son. Of course. I mean, that's a, a, a classic part of theater fundraising, when you, <laughs> when you take a couple of family members on a safari. I mean, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a game of golf or a yacht cruise, but... <laughs> so we've got a couple of dinners... Uh, we've got uh-huh. some train tickets. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's a safari? Is that really necessary? Oh, 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, he won't do it unless he gets to kill a lion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on May 2nd, 2012, it was announced the new opening day for Rebecca would be November 18th, 2012, with previews beginning October 20th and rehearsals starting on September 20th. And most of the cast and crew stayed on with the project. But in that same press release... It was announced that both Sierra Bogus and main actor Tam Mutu, who was set to play Max, were leaving the project. Uh-oh. And that they would be replaced by actors Jill Pace and Ryan Silverman, respectively. Now, apparently the two stars couldn't hold their schedules indefinitely as new offers came about. I can't remember the name of the, the musical that Bogus went to, but it also kind of tanked. But the pair of Pace and Silverman still gave some promise as Pace had some leading credits on Broadway to her name while Silverman had some Broadway ensemble credits but was an up-and-comer with a great voice and terrific look. So, you know, kind of that classic Broadway story of we made this guy with Rebecca. Yeah, 42nd Street stuff. Yep. Tickets were available for purchase beginning May 24th, 2012. So everything's going along quite swimmingly, right? I mean, you know, like we said, the stars went off and did other projects because they had other things come up. They couldn't hold out indefinitely. Okay, fine. Just a few bumps in the road, but now everything's sailing smoothly. And of course, you must be thinking, we wouldn't be talking about this on Euripides Humanities unless something completely off the wall happened, right? Well, consider us about to hit the wall. Yeah. I'm also thinking that I was, <laughs> I was in New York in summer 2012. I must have seen some kind of pre-publicity or something. I, oh, I, yeah. I just, it's... It's just been completely erased from my mind. That's fine. On September 8th, 2012, just under two weeks before rehearsals were supposed to begin, it was announced that the rehearsals would be pushed back another two weeks as they had received unfortunate news that Mr. Paul Abrams had died of malaria while on another safari. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, he died doing what he loved. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Uh, You know, if you go down there and try to shoot some rhinos, there's some malaria. (laughs) (laughs) Thus, the large investment he would offer would be held up until the estate could be settled. However, the producers had pledged to pay for the actors' time for uh, pay the actors for their time. They would have been in rehearsal, but did not announce a new opening date or when previews would start. So, at least the actors got paid. They're going to be put off for two weeks, but they're getting paid for it. The producers are being at least that kind. But it's eating into the producers' money at that point as well. But this wasn't Sprecher's first sign of trouble in the investment partnership with Houghton. (laughs) Right. You see, the four investors that Houghton had set up seemed to only be able to be contacted by email. (laughs) 
Oh no. Oh no. Hutton himself seemed to have the red phone that could get to any one of them at any time, but Sprecher and his production team did not. Trade.investor at catfish.com. Sprecher had several emails from Abrams who praised Houghton for securing this opportunity for them all. But when it came time to have the money wired so the production could continue, Houghton seemed to have reasons each time why the transaction couldn't occur. Sometimes it was the investors were not in a service area for communications. Sometimes it was either Houghton was ill or one of the investors was in the hospital. And after Abrams' death in August 2012, Houghton put Sprecher into contact with a person named Wexler, who was a representative of Abrams' estate, who also could only be contacted by email. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Needless to say, the efforts to contact Wexler were also fairly fruitless. Sprecher even went so far as to book a flight to London to track Wexler down, but canceled it at the last minute. <laughs> because he's fictional, right? <laughs> <laughs> well... We'll see. Um, <laughs> as bad as it was sounding, Sprecher and company forged ahead, and on September 26th, a private email leaked to the press. The email was to the cast from the production stage manager, who stated that rehearsals would begin on October 1st, 2012, and while it didn't go into detail about the re- what the rehearsal schedule would be, it did go into great detail on when lunch would happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... At that point, you know, you're wondering whether you, you're wondering, A, whether you have a job at all, but mm-hmm. B, you're wondering whether you're going to get lunch. Is there pastrami? All right. <laughs> but four days later, on September 30th, a new statement was issued. It's kind of a lengthy one here, so I'm just going to read the entire quote here. After Paul Abrams, a major investor, passed away in London on August 5th, 2012, and who, with three other colleagues, represented the last portion of the $4.5 million for the full capitalization of the production, the Schubert organization generously granted a delay and rehearsals were postponed for several weeks. Sprecher and Forlenza had subsequently managed to virtually fill in the missing gap during the last three weeks, primarily from a new investor, their own funds, and an additional commitment from an investor who had already made a substantial investment. So in the meantime, they're still getting paid, but they still got to come up with four and a half million dollars. On Friday, September 28th at approximately 1 p.m., Sprecher and Forlenza were informed that an extremely malicious email filled with lies and innuendo had been sent directly to the new investor that morning from an anonymous third party. The email was designed to scare this investor away and it succeeded the investor withdrew. It's very <laughs> hard to unpick which of these things is likely to be true. But I, I, I feel like the guy on Catfish is just sort of saying, please have one phone call. Ask, ask, ask for a video chat, please. <laughs> Holding up today's paper if you can't do anything else. <laughs> There's this great bit in one of Pat Oswalt's very early uh, stand-up routines where he's talking about the TV show Cops and how they always manage to find some guy who is in the act of prostitution, and he has no idea that the woman he has solicited is actually a man in drag. So, <laughs> and the cops get to go talk to this guy, and they go, hey, hey, you see Sally over there in the other car? Yeah, that's Lloyd. And uh, we get Lloyd like two or three times a week down here. And just the, you see the greatest emotional range on that guy as he's going through the no i paid her 400 but oh (laughs) (laughs) 
there's, ver there's various uh, there's various drag race alumni that said basically before drag race came along if mm -hmm. you were a drag queen in hollywood your job was playing sex workers on cop shows that was yep. <laughs> that was where the work was oh man okay so this big investor who had just said i'm going to help save the show got an email that said don't invest in the show and they pulled their money it would seem that this investor who remained anonymous for a while had received an email from someone involved with the production and the email was signed by the emails were either signed by bethany walsh or sarah finkelstein no such names were involved with the company right <laughs> The email was laced with suggestions that perhaps these new investors were all part of an elaborate scheme to defraud Sprecher and his production company of some serious cash. Furthermore, the email suggested that Abrams and the other new investors may not have even existed at all, <laughs> as you picked up on, and it was just <laughs> unclear how implicit Sprecher and his team were in this scam. So the investor pulled all interest from the show. <laughs> So I'm beginning. I'm beginning to see why the cast weren't fully on the let's kill Sprecher right. because it's, it's, it's clearly this this mysterious facilitator guy mm -hmm. with his eight computers, <laughs> little, little post-it note saying Sarah Finkelstein on on one of them and Bethany Walsh on another. Yeah. Oh, I better wow. write from something from Abrams. Oh wait, he's dead. I, Damn it! You, you you may have the answer to this uh, coming up, yeah. but. Was this somebody who found themselves out of their depth and started improvising, or was this somebody who set out to scam right from the start? Because it just feels like you know, th there's a world in which this guy's like, I promised them four million pounds, I want to invent some new people. Um, <laughs> in the wheel, Peter Fotheringale, uh, he's got a million pounds. Oh, he's just been shot, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, damn, he got COVID. Wait, that's 10 years in the future. <laughs> Shit. Um, now, not only this, the New York Times had started to poke around and they published a story stating that they could find none of the companies that had been cited as being connected to Abrams, nor could they have found any official death record anywhere in the UK. Oh, I feel less <laughs> bad for joking about him dying of malaria now because uh, it sounds as if that wasn't something that occurred to him because he wasn't real. Ah, yeah. How about that? This brings us back to October 1st, 2012, where we started this episode when director Michael Blakemore assembled the entire cast to discuss face-to-face -face what was going on. And of course, all these actors had been paid for their time, but they had also arranged their lives to be in this production yeah. and now had rearranged their lives several times in hopes that they would be in the next big Broadway hit. I mean, the marquees had already been placed on the Broadhurst Theater. It was up there, Rebecca the Musical. <laughs> And the show had already sold $1 million in advance ticket sales. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but then you look at who bought the tickets, and they're all, they're all Sarah Finkelstein and Bethany Walsh. Yeah, right? so... uh, yeah, I'll just pick them up at Will Call. We'll pay then. <laughs> and October 1st, 2012, was the only time that the cast was assembled in full. Oh, it makes me feel ill. Those poor actors, they, it makes me they, feel ill never met again as a company. So by this time, Sprecher's lawyer, Ronald Russo, released statements that he and his legal team had actually verified the claims written by Bethany Walsh and Sarah Finkelstein. Paul Abrams did actually not exist, nor did any of the other investors that Houghton had rounded up. And this was released by Sprecher's lawyer. Oh, God. Oh, wait, well, so 
So Bethany and Sarah, they're actual real people. They're reporters. They're not. Oh, no, uh, no, 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 no. Those are supposed to be somebody from within the company of Rebecca. And they're the ones who whistle blew to the potential investors to not get involved with this because you could be taken down in a fraud scheme. Got you. So they weren't they weren't the names on the post-its on the right. Got it. Yeah. No, no, no. So there are at least two or three parties involved in this. So Abrams and none of the other uh, uh, investors that were overseas existed and that Mark Houghton, this investment banker, had made all of them up. They were all figments of his elaborate fraud attempt. Houghton had developed several several email addresses and developed websites to somewhat legitimize the businesses of the investors that he was presenting. Any and all email correspondence was done directly by Mark Houghton, which often would look like Houghton communicating specifically with the investors and then sometimes to Sprecher and the producers directly. So he's writing to himself and then writing back to himself so he can prove that there has been communication. (laughs) I mean, I don't don't have access to hundreds of millions of dollars, but I, I flatter myself that when somebody's saying, yeah, you can uh, you can only com- communicate via email, I'm afraid. Yes, yes, their grammar and syntax is quite like mine. What a coincidence. Anyway, uh, look, a lion. Um, it, it just, it, it feels like people this savvy should really have seen through the email only thing. Right, right. But, you know, I think he was, Sprecher specifically, was so eager to get this thing produced. Right, you want to believe it. You want to believe it. You want to believe it. I mean, he had such a great product. He had great names lined up with it. It sounded like as long as they could just get that little extra kitty, they're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So now once suspicion started to rise in August, 2012, Houghton promised to Sprecher and company that he would acquire a $1.1 million loan and offered some of his own real estate and funds from his brokerage accounts as collateral. Well, it turns out that the lender for this loan was also non-existent and being another complex system of fraudulent entities and emails set up by Mark Houghton. Brilliant. Please contact <laughs> my attorney, Donald Duck, about the, the sale of my property in Narnia. I mean, come on, Mark, you've got to do better than this. <laughs> that almost is a little more optimistic than even this eager Broadway producer. You know, I'm going to pull I'm going to pull out of this eventually. This is going to be I'm going to pull this off and when you hear the number at the end of this that he actually was able to scam off them, you're like, "You did it for only that?" Wow. Oh no, oh, no, yep. no, mm-hmm. no. Yep. On October 15th, 2012, just before dawn, Mark Houghton was arrested in his Long Island waterfront home. <laughs> On October 19th, Sprecher and company filed a $100 million lawsuit against Mark Houghton. All told, Houghton was able to squeeze around $80,000 from Oh, America. man. <laughs> oh, man. Do, turns, do up an old car and sell it. Yeah, right? <laughs> Flip your waterfront home and go buy a condo. <laughs> Yep. It turns out that Houghton was also running a similar scheme against a Connecticut real estate company, and he was uh, now he was able to embezzle seven hundred fifty thousand dollars from them. So Rebecca was almost like a sidebar to him. Yeah, he that's was really awesome. working the seven. Uh huh. Through the investigation, it was discovered that Houghton had a long list of lawsuits and complaints from prior investors, and just about every one of his major financial dealings had some level of inaccuracy or questionable content. Did they do? I suppose they didn't, if they were so keen. For, I can't even finish a sentence. I'm so <laughs> astonished by the mistakes that were made here. 
But I think it's what you said about wanting it to be true so much. They clearly did no due diligence on this guy whatsoever, right? They were like, yeah, yeah. someone's turned up. He's got the money. Brilliant. Let him get the money. What is that? In, in one of Steve Martin's earliest stand-ups, he says something like, you know, uh, when you're naming things, you have to give it the appropriate ring. Like, if you're going to start a bank, it has to have some big, impressive name, like a Security First Trust and Federal Reserve, because nobody's going to put their money in Fred's bank. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, um, they, they, he just wanted it to happen so bad because, you know, once you get into the musical game, the musical producing game, that could be your bread and butter for the rest of your life. If you do it right, yeah. you know. Now, Houghton had started in, in this whole trial, it was discovered that Houghton had started a new job with Obsidian Financial in February 2012, about the same time that he started the whole scam with Rebecca. But he was let go in May 2012 after he couldn't finish the registration process. <sighs> Right. So it's so, you know, it's a real it's a real genius we're dealing with here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the guy who's like, you know, he probably like completely fraudulently submitted a uh, an application and went through the whole hiring process and convinced everybody he knew what the hell he was doing. I mean, yeah. I I didn't I didn't look up too much more. I don't know if he just had like a degree in economics from some prestigious university or something like that and knew all the buzz terms that would make people go, "Oh, yeah, he he really knows what he's talking about. We better invest <laughs> in him." Um, I like the idea of failing to complete the registration process as well like somebody said, <laughs> "Mark Hodden? Mark Hodden?" <laughs> and he didn't even reply. That's that, that's, that's how I feel he was kicked out. Who are you in the back? Oh, um, definitely not Mark I'm, Houghton. I'm Paul I... Abrams. I've got malaria. <laughs> I'm dying of malaria as we speak. <sighs> Call the ambulance. Now, however, troubles were not over for Sprecher and company. Now, this email scandal that cost them that investor from Bethany Waters and Sarah Finkelstein, that raised quite a few eyebrows as well. In early October 2012, the FBI had launched an investigation, which did result in the arrest of Houghton. But they also put Sprecher under the hot lights as well. It just wasn't clear how much Sprecher knew about this fraud scheme, which could have eventually affected the deep pockets of his past, present, and future investors. But despite all this, Sprecher was adamant to launch the show. On January 12, 2013, Sprecher issued a press release stating that Rebecca would premiere sometime before the end of the year. <laughs> despite all this going on. No, no, no. Just we're still going to do it. Just as soon as the FBI unseal the scripts, we're going to start rehearsing. And then I got to find some money, I guess, or something. <laughs> All the actors from the original cast would be offered their roles again. But what about funding this time? Sprecher happily noted that due to the international publicity, he would probably e easily be able to wrangle up the money. Plus, people really wanted to see the show, hence the $1 million in ticket sales, right? So he was certain he could make back the investment. But time was of the essence. The Schubert organization, which owned and leased the Broadhurst Theater, was compassionate in extending the lease for a greater amount of time. I think they just felt bad for him. He had raised two-thirds of the money anyway already before any of this fell out, so he might be able to pull it off. So they gave him the deadline of launching by the end of 2013, or else they would cancel the lease and Sprecher would need to refund his investors. <laughs> well, we've got we've got a deadline now. We're okay. we're probably right. if anyone else comes in and says I can get you all the money, we're probably going to ask to see I don't know at least a photo. <laughs> so so we're getting somewhere. Can I sit down with them at lunch and see an ID? <laughs> can we go on safari? Maybe that's how <laughs> that's what I hear. <laughs> that's it. Pack my hunting rifle. <laughs> 
But January 2013 ended with an interesting twist. So that whole Sarah Finkelstein situation? Well, it was discovered that, of course, Bethany Waters and Sarah Finkelstein also didn't exist. Oh, I am so good. I am so good. (laughs) In fact, the man behind those women was none other than Mark Thibodeau. French spelling, T-H-I-B-O-D-E-A-U. Mark Thibodeau. The press agent contracted to run publicity for Rebecca once it launched on Broadway. Oh. (laughs) Oh, now. Thibodeau had a long history of public relations and entertainment, having run publicity for Les Miserables and was currently running publicity for Phantom of the Opera. So he knows knows the gig. He knows the gig. His record has been described as impeccable. However, in the summer of 2012, when suggestions of fraud began to surface, Thibodeau took it upon himself to communicate with the biggest donor who he would most likely be working with on future projects to help this donor avoid being involved with a potential fraud scheme. (laughs) Right. Where's this going? So Sprecher and company didn't really take too much liking to this whistleblower situation and filed suit against Thibodeau, set at $10 million, in order to recruit some of the loss from the production that never was. Thibodeau and his law team maintained that Thibodeau was working in the best interest of the investors and had shown evidence to Sprecher and the other producers that Paul Abrams did not exist before they found out that he really didn't exist, but they moved forward with the production anyway. So he's saying, I'm telling you, he's not real. And they're going, no, 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 we're pretty sure it's okay. Yeah, uh, Sprecher's back in the bad zone now, isn't he? Uh Uh Uh-huh, If we've got people saying that he knew. Yep. From here, several things happen, and this is how we'll end this episode with epilogues to a story that may or may not have actually ended. Mark Houghton. Mark Houghton pled guilty to all counts against him when put on trial in July 2013. He was sentenced to 34 months in federal prison and was ordered to pay restitution of 48000 and forfeit 500000 Right, that, that sort of escalates as it carries on, doesn't it? Uh-huh, you go uh-huh. for 34 months and then half yeah, a mil, yeah. okay. But he's out of prison now. Yeah. Mark Thibodeau. The case against Mark Thibodeau took several turns over the next few years. Despite the legal action against him, which was a filing from Sprecher and Company directly to the state Supreme Court of New York, so it passed every other level of court, went right to the top, Thibodeau filed his own countersuit against the Rebecca producers for breach of contract, unjust treatment, defamation, and fraud. But then Thibodeau withdrew the suit in January 2014. So it only took him like three months to get over it. In May 2017, a jury ruled mostly in favor of Sprecher and company, but regarding the defamation suit, they sided with Thibodeau. Thibodeau was ordered to pay back his contract fee of $5,000 and another $85,000 for scaring off potential investors. So he did not get what he bargained for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean, I'm sure somebody like that can come up with $95,000. Yeah, no, sure. Or nine, sure. Yeah. But I, I, <clears throat> I suspect uh, when he started uh, inventing Bethany and Sarah, he didn't think, this is a good idea. It's only going to cost me ninety grand. <laughs> it turns out that the anonymous angel investor that he scared off was Larry Runsdorf, a pharmaceuticals executive from Florida. <laughs> when you're scaring off someone from Florida by how crazy your situation is, <laughs> then you 
You really, you really know that something's wrong. <laughs> I've seen some weird shit in my life, but this is just... <laughs> yeah. Sprecher and Thibodeau eventually settled out of court for an undisclosed amount in May 2019. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a feature-length episode of The Good Wife, is what this is. Right? It's, it, it, it's a decade of this. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, more than that, because they started in uh, 2008 with the announcement. Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Here's Ben Sprecher's story. Despite troubles with federal investigations and ongoing lawsuits, Sprecher was determined more than ever to get Rebecca off the ground. He was able to attract some new investors in March 2013, and it again raised $8 million by July 2013. And then, remember, the goal was to have the play open December 2013. And while he was looking for investors... Sprecher and his production team were cleared by the Securities and Exchange Commission for their involvement in the hot and fraud scheme. At the end of the day, they just determined, okay, you were duped. Yeah. <laughs> Sprecher Which is was mixed a- news, isn't it, when you're trying to raise money? <laughs> right. On the one hand, I'm not a criminal. On the, on, on the other hand, I am quite stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or just naive, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sprecher was able to convince the VBM, the Viennese theater that still held international rights to Rebecca, to extend the contract of their rights to perform the play until December 31st, 2014. But after that, not a lot was heard about Rebecca until the Thibodeau trial began in May 2017. So we got a period of like three years here. Now remember that the Schubert organization gave them until the end of 2013. Yeah. Or else they were going to kick them out. Here's what we found out. In the opening statement, Sprecher's attorney stated that they had lost the rights to produce Rebecca, which forced Sprecher and company to refund their investors. Sprecher's last big show was the West End stage adaptation of the film The Exorcist. Oh. (laughs) I knew someone in that. Mm -hmm. And it ran from October 2017 to March 2018 as a limited engagement. In August 2019, two years ago... Sprecher was arrested in his Harlem home for possession of child pornography. Oh, man. And thousands of files were found in his home, including a 45-minute video of a grown man having illicit sex with a preteen girl. Oh, God. That's the story of Ben Sprecher. Rebecca never made it to the Broadway stage, but it has had great success in international markets all over Europe, as well as Japan and Korea. And that's the story of the failed Broadway adaptation of Rebecca. (laughs) Well, I think, I think that has more plot twists than actual Rebecca. <laughs> I mean, where, where's the musical about this? Yeah, yeah, right, right, okay. And you could include that one that we heard. Like, just put it, yeah. say, this is in rehearsal, and, and that gets the audience thinking, wow, this you is going to be You could do the whole huge. Smash thing. I mean, <laughs> after Smash had a fictional musical, which was then performed in concert as a real musical. Right, you know, right. Oh. You can go as meta as you like. I want, I want, <laughs> Rishprecha, R- Rishprecha, the musical. Rishprecha. <laughs> I started reading about this. I found this article. It was like the 10 weirdest things to happen in theater in the 2010s. And I saw this and they're like, the Rebecca musical. And I went, oh, okay. And started reading about it. And just as I started peeling layers off, I was going, whoa, so many people were misled here. <laughs> and also, uh, just, the idea of somebody who has got hard drives full of the most disgusting stuff willingly inviting the FBI into their life. 
just it feels like you know the ability to compartmentalize must have been huge because <laughs> you must if, if if you're if you're dealing in something that completely disgusting you're you're surely going to want to steer clear of lawyers and cops and law enforcement as much as you can. <laughs> it makes but me wonder Paul, if, if if that, you know, was like, uh, you know, uh, somebody developing a, a, a serious uh, drinking problem after, you know, some serious traumatic yeah, event. I suppose. Yeah, but even then. <laughs> and yeah. I guess this Houghton guy, like, I mean, after so many, uh, like, failed business relationships and everything... I have to wonder if some, okay, I'll relate it this way. Uh, the first home I owned, I lived next door to people who were renting the place and they were quite often having the police come over for dom domestic disputes and things like that. Um, the, the, the woman of the couple would come over with their son and bring him over to our place and say, Hey, I need him to stay over here for a couple hours. His dad's being taken to prison again or something like that. And, and she would often just disappear for weeks at a time. And we're like looking over at their lawn growing and going, geez, I wonder what's going on. So they left the place eventually. And uh, a friend of mine was looking at the house. He and his, his wife-to-be were finding their first home. And I said, if I were you, I would really ask for like a background check on that house. Because when they moved out, I saw way too many like barbecue grill propane tanks come out of that place and i was really involved with watching breaking bad at the time and i'm like <laughs> i think something was going on there turns out they were cooking meth in the basement there you go <laughs> so my friend told his real estate agent the real estate agent had people come in and because of this this real estate agent started a new business cleaning homes that had been impacted by the cooking of meth <laughs> wow and that, that's a, that's a there's enough for it to be a going concern. There was enough for it to be something where it's like, it's my side hustle. Wow. <laughs> so, so what do you do for a living? I clean up meth houses. <laughs> I mean, it's the end of the conversation, isn't it? There's no... <laughs> you, you know how he should advertise it? A, a succession of photos, like with, with one year, two years. This is how your house looks on meth. <laughs> <laughs> Famous all the mugshots, just with the house getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Well, it just makes me wonder if something like that came about with somebody like Houghton. There might not have been a like a standardized procedure for following people like that. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, back check your investor or <laughs> something like that. I've created yeah, yeah, yeah. an app, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that, that what is what I think is most extraordinary about the whole story, because uh, I've, I've said this already, but at the point where somebody says, I've got a load of investors for you, Give me more money so I can take them on safari. By the way, you can't contact them. I mean, don't you Google? You don't need an app. You don't need an app. You need broadband. That's what you but, need in order to get rid of this scam. You need but access he, to the internet. But he'd done it. He had like set up like, you know, one or two pages for each of the investors to make it look like they had something of a yeah, resume. And I, and I bet they were GeoCities Comic Sans. I bet there was... <laughs> I bet there was every indication that he'd spent about an hour on them. Uh, I'll put you in touch with their MySpace page. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, I've heard of Sierra Bogus. You know, she did The Little Mermaid. Yeah. I can't really say too much more that she's done other than that. I know she's still a name. I know people still hire her. She's, she's appeared over here a bit. Yeah, yeah. As well, um, yeah. 
I, I, I think that Rebecca actually did come to the West End for a little bit. Maybe. I can't remember oh, did if it, it did or not. I it have, might I have. I missed that. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm getting my research mixed up. It was Sprecher doing The Exorcist, which yeah, yeah. that's still like, uh, you know, I, I, I can just see some, some British investors going, well, it sounds like you had a spot of bad luck over there in the States. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us this scary story. <laughs> the Exorcist had a former friend of mine in it, somebody mm-hmm. that was basically not the person that we all thought he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. when, it, when it tanked, I was, I was quite pleased just on those grounds alone. <laughs> <laughs> and now I know that there was also uh, an abuser uh, funding it. So there's every, the, uh, there I feel go. very good about that decision mm-hmm. in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so funny when I started looking up Ben Sprecher and, and everything. I'm seeing the stories of, you know, fraud and everything. And then they're like, child pornography. I'm like, well, I should stop looking at this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, but particularly since you were Googling meth labs an hour before. You know, you've, got, you've got a real... Meth labs, child pornography. I'm I'm trying to start organized crime in Sheridan Land. (laughs) Well, there we go. I guess, uh, you know, if the story's too good to be true, maybe don't believe it. Yeah. Also, if somebody only exists on email, they don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think there are two travesties out of this whole thing. One, those actors were fully invested. They had rearranged their lives and got blown out of the water. I'm sure some of them went on to success. I, 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 you know, I couldn't research that deep. But the other one is there's this great English adaptation of the, the, the musical Rebecca that's out there. And we heard the that's one wait, song wait from it. to pick it up. Right? And I'm sure, you know, now 10 years have passed, maybe somebody could blow some dust off that thing and go, all right, I see what happened here. I see where this went wrong the first time. We're not going to make those mistakes. We are going to go ahead and make this musical happen and see where it goes. And Sheridan, Wyoming is the place for it to happen. Well, I have a friend in Vienna. Maybe he can put me into the VBM. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) oh man well there we go john thank you for joining me on this episode oh my huge pleasure what a joy what an amazing story what a ride right like (laughs) and and it's one that you know you've been like they put up the marquee didn't we hear about this and we haven't like (laughs) i say i was i was in new york that summer i probably walked past the marquee yeah then you know it's just oh there's a show that's going to open i'll hear about it when it opens yeah right right okay well there you go. And thank you again for joining me all the way from London during the run of The Normal Heart. I'm so glad we were able to arrange that. And if anybody is in London at this time, go ahead and get your tickets to a normal, The Normal Heart. Uh, you only have a few more weeks left. But for my friends and listeners elsewhere, this has been Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming for another episode of Euripides Humanities. And I will see you in another two weeks at intermission.